Welcome to episode 1037 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangrass presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangrass. Hello. Hello. You're talking unusually fast. Yeah, well, we have an unusually <laughs> long episode to get to, or at least it was a, a long recording process. I don't know whether that will come through in the actual finished product, but take our word for it. It took a long time. <laughs> so <laughs> we are going to do our last preview podcast today. So later in this episode, we're going to talk to the Wall Street Journal's Jared Diamond about the Yankees. But before that, we will talk to Travis Sochik from Fangraphs about the Pirates. And even before that, we have a bit of banter to get to. You want to start? Yeah. Okay. So I have two things. I have two things. Well, we'll start. Robbie Ray. Robbie Ray was ejected from a game on Sunday already. You know that's silly because Sunday was still spring training. These are still yeah. spring training games. I'm just going to read Nick Picoro's tweet, which is whatever. That's all the authority I need. Robbie Ray has been ejected from the game for arguing balls and strikes. He was just rung up on strike three as a hitter. Robbie Ray, starting pitcher for the Arizona Diamondbacks, was so frustrated by balls and strikes as a hitter in spring training. I don't know more about the context. I don't want to look it up. I don't know if it explains things. But I know. do we have pitch FX for this for this game? <laughs> yeah, we don't even know if he was right or wrong. And actually, Arizona. I don't know if this is a home game, but Arizona's talking yeah. stick uh, was Salt River. That's that's got. Pitch of right. extra trackman or whatever it is these days, but mm-hmm. could yeah, be a so, post for you. <laughs> to uh, to whatever extent you think that spring training doesn't matter, and oh, it doesn't. I guess maybe players just can't shut off the the competitive juices that uh mm-hmm. that flow through them. And when I first saw this, and and Ben, you and I talked about this very briefly earlier in the recording process, but you know, we first talked about it. It's like, oh, what a weird thing to get ejected from a game arguing balls and strikes in a spring training game is a pitcher it doesn't really matter whatever you know it's frustrating but you figure that 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 argument that blow up that it takes Mm -hmm. to actually get ejected that requires more emotion than i thought was present in any player's (laughs) body but i don't know maybe this to do this as a hitter it could reflect on his pitching performance i understand that it wasn't great uh maybe he just really wanted to get out of the sun uh, maybe maybe he just wanted to say the magic word. I'm not entirely certain, but there's, I guess, maybe part of spring training is that you just have to, maybe you can't compete. Maybe they don't even know what it's like to be on a baseball field facing or performing live pitching without caring a lot. But I mean, I don't know. I guess I've been observing to myself that this spring seems to be the spring when spring training intentional walks are like officially almost dead. I think there's only been one after there's usually Uh been about like 8 to 12 each year. I continue to research this. I don't know why. I think I've written about it once. But (laughs) like that part of being prepared for the Major League Baseball season is kind of ending. But I don't know. This part, getting ejected for balls and strikes as a pitcher hitter, that's, I don't know, that's that's incredible (laughs) to me. Kudos to Robbie Ray, who just based on this fact alone, seems like someone who's probably a little too intense for me to want to hang out with. But I guess that's probably (laughs) one of those things that's good to select for as a professional athlete, maybe. Yeah. Well, it looks like he's still been striking out more than a batter per inning with a (laughs) near five ERA in sprint training. So maybe he's just getting tired of his peripherals and his ERA not matching up and it just spilled over. What else you got? 
I think a ERA near five in spring training is like leading the league. Okay, so the other one, <laughs> this is a report coming from the Associated Press. I guess I might as well just read this as well. This is going to be effectively, it's four paragraphs, but three of them are just one sentence. Okay, so this this won't take okay. too long. Goodyear, Arizona, AP, didn't need to say that. It's no secret that Cleveland Indians want to sign all-star shortstop Francisco Lindor to a long-term contract. Mm. Thanks to little Brody Chernoff, the length of that mm-hmm. deal may now be known. On Saturday, the six-year-old son of Indians general manager Mike Chernoff was invited into the team's broadcast booth during the ninth inning of an exhibition game against the Chicago White Sox. During the visit, Brody Chernoff was asked a few questions by veteran announcer Tom Hamilton, who wanted to know if the youngster's dad was working on any new deals. Quote, he's trying to get um, Lindor to play for seven more years, Brody answered. <laughs> Hamilton burst into laughter at the response and joked that we better not talk anymore, Brody. So I guess, first of all, okay, cute story. Kids say the damnedest things, right? Whatever. <laughs> to whatever extent, is this just plainly unethical if you're the team's <laughs> veteran broadcaster and you're like all right we've all heard tv or radio segments when they bring on the gm and he kind of hems and haws and he beats around the bush and he doesn't really talk about anything out yeah. of the ordinary but this is like this is like you're asking you've basically bugged the general manager if you're going to talk to his family because like the right. last person that a gm would want to be careful around is his six-year-old son who mm-hmm. by all means should know nothing about what's going on but in order for him to say he's trying to get Leandor to play for seven more years, either this kid is like on the phone call or he's <laughs> like asked questions directly of his dad. Yeah. There's a decent amount of detail there. Now, granted, I think one of the things about the story is that ultimately it's not really like breaking news that, of course, right. seven years makes sense. It's exactly <laughs> yes. what you'd think the proposal would be. And he didn't break news that it's been signed. But like mm-hmm. there's there's got to be if this was anything you just assume that the Indians want to <laughs> sign yeah, of course. to an extension. So, yeah, it's not really something that will matter. But still, yes, it's not the way that this news typically comes out. Right. And for him to say that matter of fact, the seven years leaned door like did his dad tell him <laughs> Did he ask yeah, his dad is it a plant is he, or is he a mole? <laughs> Like, is Chernoff trying to put public pressure on Lindor <laughs> by having his six-year-old son break this news so that if Lindor doesn't sign the extension, it looks like it's his fault or he's disappointing six-year-old Indians fans or something? Yeah, I mean, I considered that. I also considered that if that's not the case, then yeah, maybe Chernoff would be annoyed that the team's <laughs> broadcaster <laughs> tried to milk his six-year-old son for info, although... That's kind of a a hazard of having your six-year-old son go on the broadcast. I guess you have to be willing to to risk something coming out because who knows what a six-year-old's going to say. But yeah, all of those things crossed my mind. It's a cute clip. If you haven't heard it, you should go listen. So do you suspect... I mean, look, having kids in the booth, every team does it. They're usually death. But like, this is Brody Turnoff. This isn't just like some kid won a special whatever. Do you think his dad must have known he was going to go up, right? Do you think that he was coached and said this? Or do you think he wasn't coached and said this on his own? I mean, yeah, he must have known. And so you'd think he either would have sworn him to silence to the extent that you can do that with a (laughs) six-year-old or... Or given him a line, because for the rest of the few minutes he was on, he didn't really say anything. He he sounded like a six-year-old. And then this one line, he, he was just very emphatic about what his dad was trying to do with Francisco Lindor. So somewhat suspicious. Like, I don't know, maybe, maybe the news is approaching. Maybe they're hammering out details and they're trying to build anticipation or something. Or maybe it is just something he overheard or asked his dad because he likes Lindor and wanted to know how long he'd 
be on the team or something like that. Like right after that, he then goes into talking about whether Lindor is actually young or not, or because <laughs> like a six year old doesn't have a great conception of how old baseball players are or how old young baseball players are relative to old baseball players. So he was trying to figure out whether Lindor is actually young for a baseball player. So he's not an expert on all things concerning Francisco Lindor, but seemed to be as far as his contract extension goes. So did seem kind of coached, possibly. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case. Interesting. So, yeah. you know, either either he is some sort of detailed mole who's like talented beyond his years at picking up information out of his dad about the workings mm-hmm. of a front office, or maybe his dad wanted this news to get out there through some means. He sort of like laundered his, <laughs> his gossip, I guess, where it's like <laughs> they won't... He's the GM probably isn't supposed to say I'm trying to sign Lindor to a seven year contract. Right. right. But if his son says it, then you can't prove there's no paper trail. Probably. Probably. I hope. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Maybe you need to write it down for a six year old, which would be that'd be bad. But I guess we're probably yeah. not going to get a special prosecutor for this one. They're probably all <laughs> waiting by the phone, busy for something else. So I yes. don't know what the truth is about Brady Chernoff, but I think that he might have done his last on-air interview (laughs) yeah i'd like to hear other gm's kids go on the air i hope this becomes a a trend Uh, a couple quick things i had i don't know if you read mike trout had a proposal about spring training umpiring he told buster only i think that veteran umpires in spring training should work five or six innings and then the rest of the innings could be called by minor league umpires so that they would get some major league esque seasoning in spring training and according to only story baseball officials loved this idea i don't know exactly what a baseball official is but one official says it makes a lot of sense for a lot of different reasons and another official says that's trout he's always paying attention to stuff beyond what he's doing which is interesting because that is not really my impression of trout at all is that your impression of trout that he's like paying attention to a lot of things like he's a single-minded baseball machine and we know he likes weather but and he likes uh, i don't know the eagles i guess i i know those (laughs) two things about what trout likes or he likes millville he likes the eagles and he likes weather and he's certainly not a talkative person who's giving quotes all the time or opining about how he thinks baseball should work. He's just kind of giving you cliches and he's just trying to help the team. So this actually changed my perception of Trout. If this baseball official knows what he or she is talking about, that Trout is thinking about a lot of things, even if he's not talking to us about them. Interesting quote. Yeah, that sort of changes my perception of him a little bit. And I guess it further cements the idea that maybe Mike Trout can just kind of be baseball's Wayne Gretzky. Or he was yeah. sort of one of those players who is supposed to know basically what all of his teammates, where they were at any given time on the ice, even though, of course, he's just right. one guy. Baseball is a little less dynamic and fluid of a sport. Mike Trout can afford to be a little more preoccupied, think about everything, because he has a lot of time where he's doing nothing, standing around. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure he has a lot of time to think. And this would be one of the things that he thinks about, aside from when am I going to have to run down the next screaming line drive into the gap? <laughs> Yeah. So one other thing here, I just sent you a link. This is a link to a tweet by friend of the podcast, Kazuto Yamazaki, who originally brought 
the NPB player Takuya Nakashima to my attention. I've written about him. We devoted an entire podcast to him. He is the Japanese player who hits almost everything on the ground, almost everything the other way. He is a unique hitter, or at least different from any major league hitter. And one of the things that I was speculating about in the article was what would happen if he were shifted, because it seemed to me that one of the reasons he'd been able to survive as long as he had just bunting and slapping everything the other way on the ground was that there's been a resistance to shifting in Japanese baseball. It hasn't caught on yet the way it has here. And it seemed like he'd be a very easy guy to shift against. And so Kazuto tweeted or quoted this tweet from the Yakult Swallows were shifting against Nakashima in both of his games this past weekend. And the shift looks like primarily an outfield shift. The right fielder is standing close to dead center, shaded a little bit toward right field, but looks like he's a center fielder, essentially. And... The left fielder is almost right on the line. The center fielder is in the left center field gap. And then in the infield, the third baseman's hugging the line and the shortstop is pulled over a bit in the hole. And then the other fielders are pretty normal. So this is a shift, not a common sight that we would see in the majors. I asked Kazuto what happened and he said, They used the shift in all of Nakashima's plate appearances on Saturday and Sunday, and it didn't really stop him. He went one for two (laughs) with a pair of walks on Saturday, and then he went one for three with a walk on Sunday. And uh, there's one of his at-bats, at least on YouTube, although it's tough to find because all the text is Japanese, but you can get a different look at the field and I'll link to that if you're interested but it looks like an innovation looks like a change in how he's being played so evidently didn't stop him yet but I am curious to to see what happens the at least one of these hits the one hit that I see in this video here he just kind of fought one off and blooped it to left field and it dropped it Looked like the left fielder played it pretty conservatively. Looked like he could have maybe had it if he'd wanted to. But despite the shift, he still managed to single in a fly ball to left field. Yeah, looking at this shift visually, I can still see where maybe the outfield just, they seem like they're playing a little too deep given what I know about the player's profile. And there's, I can't tell if in this picture there's a runner on first, but the second baseman could probably be pulled over to his right a little more because there's a lot of space right up the middle. But I mean, this is at least as extreme of an outfield shift as I think I've ever seen for a player. And if they just mm-hmm. brought in the outfielders a little more, it feels like one of those things where he wouldn't be able to get a hit again. But who yeah. am I <laughs> to doubt his wizardry? Yep. Yeah, the thing I said in the article was that you just really didn't need a right fielder because he never mm-hmm. hits it there almost. If you just brought another infielder in, that would work. So this isn't quite that, but it's a step closer Okay, very last thing, I have sent you (laughs) another link. This is to a sound clip of Terry Francona talking about an injury Lonnie Chisenhall sustained by crashing into an outfield wall, and I'm going to play it now. He, uh, you know, hit the wall kind of Rayburnish. Yeah. Um, It's the way it was explained. It's a a slight to mild strain, so we'll, we'll know more. I would, I'm, you know, when he shows up tomorrow, seeing how stiff he is, yeah. um, we'll have to see. Once I got out there, he just said, he goes, it's getting stiff. And I'm like, you know, it's 
go get some ice on it and not turn this into something it doesn't need to be. <laughs> so hitting the wall, kind of Rayburn-ish. Uh, that is a, a thing. Another thing that Ryan Rayburn apparently is known for in addition to being amazing in one year and then terrible the next and also throwing really fast when he's warming up before innings and throwing to the bat boy. By the way, someone else pointed out to us that Rayburn has actually pitched in games and so that explains why he throws so hard he was clocked at 89 in 2013 and 85 in 2015 so he throws hard and that's not without crow hopping anyway this is another thing that we now know ryan rayburn for crashing into outfield walls and hurting yourself is and ryan rayburn-ish it's, Thank it's you, not Cohen. only he runs into walls he runs into them in such a distinctive way it's just like <laughs> i didn't know that you could like run into a, a wall with a particular flair or style but <laughs> kudos to ryan rayburn yeah. he has he has his own way all right let's finish this season preview series Okay, we have come to the penultimate team in our season preview series, and to talk about that team, the Pirates, we have brought on Travis Sachik, who is the author of Big Data Baseball, and as of fairly recently, a staff writer for Fangraphs, although he has already written 100 Fangraphs posts, even though <laughs> you started in January. That's that's a year's worth of work, <laughs> or it, it should be. <laughs> 100 posts is, is too much to have written since January. Stop writing so much please <laughs> well i have to you're at like three thousand posts already ben i mean how well, have you done true. that, you did that in like i did days. that all in one day <laughs> yeah <laughs> you, you that's true the standard i mean you're, only, you're making this all look bad stop yeah importing those effectively wilds really vaulted me up the <laughs> fangraphs author leaderboards there's a lot of fangraphs author post credit on this podcast right now <laughs> yeah uh-huh. um there's a lot of upset people with you. <laughs> yeah. So the Pirates, you're no longer covering them on a day-to-day basis anymore, so you can dish all the dirt that you couldn't tell everyone when you were on the beat. <laughs> tell us which Pirates you dislike and all the stories that you couldn't print before. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I still live in Pittsburgh, so I have to, have to try to get oh, a okay. there. So. All right. But, yeah. uh... <laughs> okay, well... Tell us, I guess, about one particular pirate who is having visa issues right now, Jung Ho Gang, who has three DUI arrests on his record. That seems to be the the most prominent pirate's storyline right now. Is this something you think they planned for? Is this something you could tell from being around the team the last couple of years? Was this ever an issue before? I think they... Part of the reason David Freeze is around is I think he was brought in as an insurance policy. They signed him in in early March last year when Freeze was still looking for work. And at at that point in time, Chung Ho was coming off a severe knee and leg injury, and they weren't sure if he was going to be ready. But as more of the -the off-the-field issues revealed themselves in the middle of last summer, they signed Freeze to an extension. And 
Uh, Freeze had been playing well, so I guess it made some sense on the surface, but it was still a 33, 34-year-old guy who isn't an obvious extension candidate. That seemed to, to speak to me anyway, that they were a little concerned about whether Gong would be on the field or his availability in, in 17 and beyond. So uh, I think they were trying to, they saw some uncertainty and they're trying to plan for it as best they could. And I think we will probably see David Freeze log many innings at third base this year. And uh, ideally, I think they wanted to reduce his plate appearances. And I know Neil Huntington had said last year, they, they thought by reducing, not having a starter's workload, the Freeze could better maintain his swing and performance. But it looks like he'll be playing quite a bit as of this moment, as Gong is not able to, to, get, to get into the country. <laughs> I don't want to, this is a bad second question, but just because no one wants the second question about the Pirates, I think to be about Adam Frazier, but I'm going to ask it anyway, just because Gong is currently not able to play for the Pirates. But, you know, with Gong out of the picture, at least temporarily, there's sort of a door opened for sort of Gong's role to be filled. So Adam Frazier sort of came up last year. I don't know if he was really anywhere in prospect lists, but he didn't play a lot. But when he did play, he hit 301, which is highly uncommon for a rookie. He hit the ball a lot. He did not hit much in the way of pop-ups. He had a a very sort of, I guess, almost Marco Scudero-like batting line. That's a bad comparison, but you know what I mean. So with Gong out, obviously you can't really replace his power, but in terms of his overall value, how much would the Pirates even necessarily miss him? Which is, I guess, an indirect Adam Frazier question. I mean, Frazier's never ranked highly on any prospect list, and he doesn't bring much power to the field, which hurts him from ever populating a uh, top 50 list overall. But the, the Pirates love his skill set. He sprays line drives all around the field. He's got this great compact uh, left-handed swing, natural bat-to-ball skills, and he he struggled a little bit moving around the field defensively last year, but he he's a college shortstop who uh, they're counting on him to play something of a utility role this year. But with guns on certain status, he's a guy who could be in line for more playing time. He could maybe take more time from Josh Harrison, regardless of gung status at second base, given his skill set and having the platoon advantage most days as a left-handed hitter. So I think the Pirates are higher on Frazier than maybe external analysts are. And yeah, I think he's going to carve out a, he won't be a star because of the lack of power and those sorts of things, but he's going to carve out a nice major league career given his ability to avoid strikeouts. And I think he had an outrageous line drive rate last year. So uh, yeah, he's going to be a nice player for them in, in some way, shape or form. And as to how much they miss Gong, that's going to depend in part upon Frazier, but also you know, what kind of player is Free is going to be? Is he going to be the guy who 860 OPS in the first half last year? Is he going to be the guy who faded? And I think he had a 650 OPS in the second half. Freeze is actually a guy who would benefit greatly from working with J.D. Martinez, swing coach, or Josh Donaldson, swing coach, <laughs> because I think he had a three to one ground ball to five ball ratio last year. And when he put the ball in the air, he had a he's had a really good home run to five ball rate his whole career, but he was as ground ball heavy as he's ever been last year. So Clint Hurdle said the OPS is in the air this spring, and if Freeze buys into that, maybe they won't miss Gong at all. But yeah, if Gong doesn't play at all this year, this is a guy who's been, I think, as a rookie, he was a four-one player and and uh, not a full year's worth of work, and he had a. 260 isolated slugging mark last year and he's proven as jeff has written about he's proven he can hit the major league fastball which was one of the biggest questions about him coming over from the kbo so he was a star level player when he played and so I, that's going to be hard to replace but the pirates do believe that they have some depth and this is a really long answer to getting back to adam Frazier's <laughs> a nice looking ball player 
Yeah, you mentioned the hurdle OPS is in the air thing. That's something that you've been writing about a ton in some of your hundred posts in the last couple months. Yeah, so I guess you you left the pirates at the wrong time to be covering that on on their turf, but that's not something that they had been talking about in past years. That's new in in your experience. In past years, it had always it wasn't OPSs in the air. It's gap to gap, use a small part of the, or use a big part of the field. There wasn't any global approach to swing playing that most batters would benefit from a from elevating the ball. There wasn't much talk of launch angles or anything like that. And in part because we're just getting access to Statcast data as a overall community, but we hadn't really heard anything like OPS in the air when I was on the beat from 2013 through last season. So yeah, that was, it was interesting to hear Clint Hurdle say that this spring. And yeah, I think it speaks to more acceptance, more information, uh, which helps create acceptance and a general proliferation of this concept throughout the game. And I'm not the only one who's written about this at Fangraphs. Jeff has written about it. And I think it was Mr. Sullivan who noted that, I think you found, Jeff, there's been 50 hitters over the last two years who uh, have a X amount of plate appearances and have increased their fly ball philosophy. So I think the Pirates are aware of this. They're going to look for guys to buy in that, that have the right skill set. And a guy from last year who's an example of this was Matt Joyce, who the Pirates did not ask him to adopt a new swing plane, but he did work with a private instructor he did change his swing plane. He did square up more balls last year. He was in a better place, and he went from a non-roster invite last year to signing a two-year deal with the A's. So I think that was evidence of for players and for staff there. Here's a guy who did buy in while he was working with private instructors. It's, it was real in-person evidence in the cages every day and batting practices every day, speaking to people every day about his experience. And I think yeah, that word of mouth helps, too. Uh, in clubhouses and in baseball. All right, we've put this off long enough. I'm just going to go ahead and get there. Andrew McCutcheon, his uh, his wins above replacement starting from, I guess, whatever, 2012. I'm just going to read an order. Everybody knows where this is going to go. I'm still going to do it because it's fun. 6.8, 8.4, 6.8, 5.8, 0.7. Andrew McCutcheon had, I don't know, maybe next to Bryce Harper, <laughs> one of the, the biggest uh, wins above replacement drop-offs between the last two seasons. No one really knows what we're going to see from Harper this coming season, but at least there's a compelling theory. I don't know if there is such a compelling theory with Andrew McCutcheon. You knew it was coming. I'm sure you've been thinking about this for at least six months. More than that, I should say nine months. I guess what happened with Andrew McCutcheon and to what extent, if any, do you see Andrew McCutcheon bouncing back to being a very good player again? Yeah, I mean, it was one of the the great drop-offs in performance in baseball history and um, it might have been the greatest I think it was the greatest age 29 drop off in, in baseball history so yeah it was pretty remarkable to, to watch it play out and McCutcheon has a lot of people thought it might be related to a knee injury he dealt with some things the year before but yeah he I mean he claimed he was healthy all last year and he never used an injury as, a, as an excuse he played the entire season so I'll take him at his word that he's healthy. And so that le- it still leaves you scratching your head about how could such a great player fall off like this. Speed score, uh, stolen base attempts, extra base hits. Any way you can try to measure or quantify speed, everything was down across the board. So it, it spoke to either he wasn't being open about an injury or he just had a sudden 
collapse of athleticism. And, you know, the Pirates, they're moving him out of center field. That's like moving Derek Jeter to third base uh, in his decline years in New York or second base. So it says a lot when teams want to move that face of the franchise out of one of the premier defensive positions. So he'll be in right field. And I think that speaks to a team questioning whether that athleticism, that range is coming back. I do think the bat is going to bounce back to a degree. And I think we saw some of that in August and September last year. I think he'll have, if nothing else, just base, basing that on mathematical sample size and principles <laughs> that he will be a little better than he was last year offensively. But defensively, you look at his defensive run saved over the last four years, and that's been in decline, I believe, every year. So that was less of a collapse and more of a trend that seems to be pointing towards a guy who is losing skills defensively, losing a step. So peak Andrew McCutcheon is gone. I don't think we're going to see that, that guy again. But I do think he... Maybe he can be a three-win player with some significant improvement offensively. Maybe that's the best-case scenario for him and the Pirates uh, going forward. But yeah, it's, a, it's a stunning collapse, and there's not a lot of historical comps for this kind of dismal age 29 season. So <laughs> he's going to be one of the more interesting players to, to watch in baseball this year to see how that goes. Yeah, as a quick follow-up, you sort of touched on it, but McCutcheon through each of the first four months of the season, he struck out... Uh, roughly a quarter of the time, which is sort of uncharacteristic for him. And then in those last two months, he dropped his strikeout rate to 15%. He had a, an OPS of something like 850. He was back to being at least a, a very good hitter. Do you kind of remember hearing anything that I, I think I remember he had some days off there at the start of August? Maybe that was one of those mental breaks I think that he had. Do you remember anything in particular that had sort of changed or clicked for him or was that just sort of regression back to his very good offensive mean? He had mentioned uh, that he had he believed he had found some things mechanically that had helped him in his swing approach but that turnaround also coincided with that three-day benching I believe there in Atlanta when they they benched him and he wasn't happy about it. Last year was also a year where the Pirates talked a lot about resting players and trying to allow players to be more efficient when they were on the field. And McCutcheon was opposed to that. He wanted to play every day. And he was just very hostile to the idea that that benching helped him mentally or physically or both turn his season around. But but he was a much different offensive player when he came back from those three days off. It seemed like he was in a better place with his swing. He was seeing the ball better. He wasn't expanding, uh, as you mentioned, the strikeout rate. So maybe it's a combination of factors, but maybe that's also evidence of yeah, guys are better off playing 140 games versus 155, or most players are, or a player like McCutcheon is. So, yeah, I, I think the Pirates are very hopeful that the last two months of the season is more indicative of, of where McCutcheon will begin this April. And I guess it depends almost entirely on how the team does, but what are the scenarios, do you think, where a McCutcheon trade becomes as big an in-season storyline as it was an off-season storyline? <laughs> It's been a, it was a tough winter for McCutcheon. I mean, how many face of franchise type players get moved about their position and very publicly, made very publicly available? Uh, and that's, those trade rumors are going to resurface, or you assume if the Pirates don't play very well in the first half, if the Cubs create a 15 game lead in July and uh, the best case looks like a, a bid for the second wild card, then I think McCutcheon will be very available again. The team, control over the players running out. McCutcheon is under contract for this season, and then there's a club option for 2018. And what would be also fascinating is if they weren't able to find a, a buyer or if they were com the Pirates are competitive and 
make the postseason. Uh, but McCutcheon's kind of a so-so player. Would they pick up the club option in, in the winter? Uh, so yeah, it's kind of the drama with McCutcheon and the club's decision to be made in, in regard to his future is it's an ongoing story. The best bet for him to remain with the club this year is obviously to, for the club to perform well and have a legitimate shot at postseason. Uh, so yeah, we'll see. We'll see how that plays out. But that story, there's still some chapters to be written <laughs> in the McCutcheon drama here as it plays out. As the 2016 Pirates story went, obviously there was a lot of focus on McCutcheon, but the Pirates' best players sort of in general contributed less to the team than they had the seasons before, and so the Pirates weren't able to be as successful as they had been before. And one of the players who sort of gets lost in the mix there sort of because of the magnitude of McCutcheon's drop-off was, of course, Garrett Cole, who missed, I would say, about 11 or 12 starts, and his ERA went up, I guess, closer to a run and a half than a run, if I want to be a real stickler about it. His ERA went from 2.6 to 3.88. His peripherals declined to sort of support that. Kept on suppressing home runs, but just generally speaking, Garrett Cole was a less healthy and less effective starting pitcher than he had been before. So, Sort of similar line of questioning as to McCutcheon. How confident are you in Garrett Cole's elbow holding up moving forward in the near-term future? And do you think that he's going to be good enough to remain the number one of this starting rotation? Yeah, I mean, you're right. You look at the Pirates and across the board, their star players really didn't perform as well last year. And Cole was almost as much a part of that as McCutcheon. And his year last year didn't start off poorly from the beginning. He had that rib injury in January. It interrupted his offseason training, then it delayed his start to spring training. Then he made three DL trips during the year. So, and speaking with Cole, he just felt he could never get that feel for mechanics. He did not nail down a master's delivery as well as he had in 2015 when he finished fifth in, in all site young voting. And I think, you know, there's something to be said for that. While his velocity was pretty much in line with his career normal last year, he was so good with slider execution and command in 2015 when he was actually better against left-handed hitters and right-handed hitters. He was able to, without really an effective changeup, he was able to backflip the slider against lefties and place a pitch wherever he wanted to. Where uh, just If you go back and look at heat maps of last season versus 2015, the command isn't as sharp. There's more misses in the zone. And I think there is something to be said for having a season interrupted three or four times and not being able to have that muscle memory of delivery. Yeah, so if I, the key is for every pitcher, it's health. But I think it's not just being on the mound for Cole. It's having that continuity of work and rep- repetition throughout a year. And if he gets to 200 innings, the Pirates have a much better chance of success than they did a year ago. And uh, the good news is, is Cole has been healthy to date. And if he continues to be that, I think he should still fit atop their rotation. And last year was not the best for the Jim Searage project tracker, I guess Nova's <laughs> reinvention salvaged things toward the end of the year. But before that, a, a few guys that the Pirates had brought in seemingly as Searage projects didn't really pan out. And of course, Jim Benedict, the other Pirates pitching guru, had left to join the Marlins before the season. So it wasn't a great season for the Searage can make everyone into an ace narrative, but that was probably always somewhat exaggerated to begin with. Do you think the team lost any confidence in that way of doing things, or was there any evidence that the Pirates' process broke down, or was it just that they had had such a high hit rate before last year that it was bound to regress and have an off year at some point? Yeah, I I mean, I think the the idea that any 
one coach has magic abilities is always kind of overstated. Mm-hmm. And I think Jim Benedict, he was part of that reclamation team and his departing to Miami, I'm sure had some effect on pitching philosophy and the, the reclamation projects they take on. And they did inherit Ivan Nova and they did fix him, I guess, at the end of the year. So there was one success story. But yeah, I think it's just one of those things where maybe the pro- the, the type of pitcher they they picked had a different, like a John Neese. He came in with a maybe a higher floor, but a lower ceiling than past off-season acquisitions they made in the pitching market. Neftali Feliz, I, I guess he, I guess he's a success story for them last year. Uh, but yeah, some of the other guys they brought in just didn't pan out as well. There were health issues. And I think one of the issues with the 2016 Pirates is after a couple things, after a couple years where everything went right from keeping players healthy to having stars perform like stars to hitting on every reclamation project. A lot of it's just not a good, all those things are not going to continue to go as well as they had been. There's going to be some regression. And I think all the problem was everything regressed in one year. <laughs> Team wasn't as healthy. Reclamation projects weren't as productive. Stars didn't perform like stars. So if a couple of those arrows point up again in 2017, Uh, they'll be in a better shape to be competitive. One player who did sort of have something of a breakthrough, albeit interrupted, Gregory Polanco delivered on a lot of the promise that I think people were expecting him to hit on almost immediately, which in retrospect was silly, but Polanco last year did that very difficult thing where he started to lift the ball more often and hit for more power and pull the ball more often without sacrificing anything in terms of his contact. So just showing the ability to do that speaks well to his to his level of talent, but he ran into some shoulder problems that I think have continued to plague him. And he uh, he's also still, just last year, he finished with a, a batting line that was a little above average. So I guess I'm just going to keep asking you the same question about different Pirates players, but essentially, same for Polanco as with Colin McCutcheon. How much more do you see within Polanco? And I guess to what extent do you think that the shoulder injury last year was, was a, a big factor in the way his numbers sort of dropped off towards the end? Yeah, I think the shoulder was a big factor. I think you can see it in his first half, second half batting lines, and I think you can also see it in StackHouse data on his his throwing velocity from the outfield. I think it was way down compared to his rookie or compared to the previous year. So, yeah, I think the shoulder was an issue, and I think there's reports of it continuing to be an, an issue at times this spring. So that's it, something to keep an eye on. I do think the breakout we saw in the first half is an indication of what Polanco can be as a player. And I think there's more there if he's healthy. And he's a guy who has to be a cornerstone for them. He's their highest ranking position prospect since McCutcheon and he is making developmental gains. So if he's healthy, if the shoulder's okay, I think we're going to see a player who eventually has a full season, uh, more like his first half. Uh, I don't know if that's going to be this year. It depends on the shoulder and, and other factors, but uh, yeah, I still think he's a he's going to be a quality major leaguer, and there's a reason they they target him as a, an extension guy. And I think the the other encouraging thing is the batted ball profile and, and getting the ball in the air. And and I do wonder, maybe going back to the Search question a little bit, is if uh, you know the Pirates have mastered this, or the, so much of their philosophy was pitching at the knees, pitching at the bottom part of the strike zone, with the two seamer, and if baseball is making adjustments to that as a whole more and more. If, batters are more and more obtaining their swings to hit that pitch. <laughs> the Pirates might need a new reclamation model and philosophy. Uh, they might have to spend some time in Tampa Bay or, or something. I don't know. So, uh, But yeah, the good news is Polanco appears to be one of those guys who is better learning to hit the ball in the air. So that 
that's certainly encouraging for his future. And how many innings, how many effective innings do you think the Pirates will get out of Tyon and Glasnow? Because it seems like those are pretty crucial players on this team, kind of make the difference between this potentially being a good rotation and it potentially being a problem. <laughs> yeah, Glasnow's a real, he's one of the biggest wild cards in spring training camps right now, I think, across all of baseball, because if he has more outings like he did the other day, where he's striking out nine and four innings and having pretty good command, limiting base runners so we don't have to worry about his running game issues, then he could be one of the more productive pitchers in this rotation. And if he can be a 2-3-1 guy for them and the mid-back end, that's a, it's a big boost. And if Nova picks up where he left off and Cole is healthy and Tyone continues to do what he did as a rookie, which was limit walks to, I think his walk rate was 5% or something very good for a first-year pitcher. He has a signature curveball. So if Tyone and Glasnow are contributors, I think the outlook of this team is we have to bump it up quite a bit. If Glasnow continues to have trouble harnessing his six foot seven frame, his delivery, and uh, Tyone has more injury issues, which he's dealt with, as everyone knows about his career, then uh, we have to downgrade the outlook of this team. So yeah, a lot is riding on young arms and the Pirates uh, with some very aggressive practices and philosophies in the draft in regard to arms have kind of bet on this and developing their own homegrown pitching and Really, their their season is really going to depend on homegrown pitching when you look at that rotation. So, yeah, those are two key guys going into the season. And however, if you get or if the team gets 360 innings out of those guys and their quality innings, they'll probably be in pretty good shape in September and be playing meaningful baseball. Yeah. And can you tell people about Felipe Rivero also, who's another guy Jeff has written about, but people might not know well because this bullpen's another area that could really go either way. Justin Wilson's gone, Melanson's gone. So only Watson is left from that trio and he's had a rough spring. And then Daniel Hudson is there, but who knows what you'll get out of Daniel Hudson. So (laughs) Rivero seems like a a key figure. Yeah, I love Rivero. And uh, a lot of people in Pittsburgh hated that trade. They hated seeing Mark Melanson, all-star closer, being dealt at the deadline. It looked like a white flag. I guess it was a white flag. But they were trading two Mm -hmm. months of a good closer for many more years of control of a really special left-handed arm. And Rivero is a guy who has rare velocity from the left side. He has uh, a wipeout slider. He has a quality changeup. It's a rare skill set, and I think he's going to assert himself as a best reliever in the bullpen this year. I think he's already already doing that at the end of last season. I mean, there are not many left-handed, maybe Chapman, beyond Chapman. There's really, I'm not sure there's another left-handed reliever in the game that can match his velocity and swing and miss capabilities. So, yeah, he's a really exciting arm. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty in the bullpen, but I think he's a guy that the Pirates are excited about, and if you're looking to stash future closer candidates on your fantasy team. Maybe he's a guy to look at. Uh, who knows how Watson and Daniel Hudson will perform. So yeah, he's definitely, he's a big time arm. And I think the Pirates made a really prudent move there in, in assessing their, being realistic about where they were last year and seeing the opportunity and uh, gaining a, a, a dynamic arm with years of control. Uh, last deadline. All right. So the time-honored last question, how many wins will this team have in 2017? <laughs> Yeah, this is a team with, uh, it could go a number of different ways. I think I almost wish we could do more of a spectrum and uh, a probability forecast, but <laughs> I understand yes. you have to come up with Maybe one next number. Year. <laughs> Got to pick one number. 
our Fangraphs projections have the Pirates at 82 wins, I think, at the moment. I think that's probably a fair hedge on where they're going to be. I think you had to be on last year, and I said 84. So I'm going to go between that. I'm going to say 83 and go between, I'm going to hedge, 83 wins, 83. So I think Tyone will be good. I think Glasnow will have some good moments, and Rivera will be great, and they'll win 83 games and miss the playoffs. <laughs> okay. Well, you can find <laughs> Travis writing every few hours for Fangraphs. <laughs> By the time this is posted, he will probably have 102 posts, I'm guessing. We'll see. But you can also find him on Twitter at Travis underscore Sochik. And his book, of course, is Big Data Baseball. Thanks, Travis. Thanks, Charles. All right. We'll be right back with Jared Diamond of the Wall Street Journal to talk about the Yankees. Just a heads up, Jared's Wi-Fi connection was weak, so we did the best we could. There are occasionally tinny Skype sounds, but I think well worth a listen. Connection problems, always a hazard of the preview podcast series, which we will wrap up right now. All right, so we are now talking about the Yankees with part-time NCAA basketball reporter and full-time national baseball writer for the Wall Street Journal, Jared Diamond. Hi, Jared. Hey, guys. How's it going? Okay. So you wrote the Yankees essay for the BP Annual, and you wrote about how the Yankees are not that hateable at the present moment. They might be hateable again in the future. They've certainly been hateable in the past do you think that that's an attitude shared by a large cross-section of Major League Baseball fans? I just think people look at the Yankees with a lot more apathy than they have in the past because they just haven't been nearly as relevant on the national scale as they were you know, for so long throughout the 90s and into the 2000s. In the last few years, they've just kind of been meh. They've been in the playoffs mm-hmm. a couple of times. And they haven't, you know, even played in a playoff series in quite a few years since 2012. Mm-hmm. It's been a while. And I just think it's really hard to hate a team that you don't kind of fear or envy. And as a result, even a team as famous as the Yankees just kind of are flying under the radar. And it kind of it helps in that regard also that they kind of don't have the star power that we're used to them having, especially now. Yeah, if there is a way in which they are dislikable, it seems to be more management comments. (laughs) If it's Hal Steinbrenner saying something about Aroldis Chapman and domestic violence or Lon Trost saying something about rich people having to sit with poor people at baseball games, the horror, it's, I guess, whenever they say something, there is often at least a, a Twitter backlash. I don't know whether there is in the general Yankee fan community, but I have seen a lot of Yankees fans say that it's sort of hard to root for their own team when those kind of comments come out. But I guess you just have to sort of separate your lifelong loyalty to the laundry to what a Steinbrenner is saying. Well, that's what's so funny about the Yankees as they're constituted right now is that I don't know if their management always is aware or recognizes just how not well they've played in recent years. You know, from an upper management standpoint, they still kind of strut around like they're competing for championships every single year, and they're not. You know, they haven't won a World Series since 2009. And I know there's a lot of teams that would kill to say that sentence. But when you're the Yankees and you go quite a while, this long without really competing for a World Series by Yankee standards, that's a really long time. You know, we're, we're looking at 
And we're not there yet, but there's at least a chance that the Yankees go through an entire decade without winning a World Series, even making a World Series. And that's unheard of for the Yankees. The Yankees even made a World Series in the 80s. That was the real years. If they, if they go three more years without getting to the World Series, I don't think that's unreasonable. That would be un, really unprecedented for the Yankees to go a whole decade without appearing in a World Series. Well, even though the Yankees are sort of in what I guess they would refer to as a World Series drought, and maybe they're not going to win in 2017, they have definitely not finished uh, below 500 since 1992, which is, of course, a very incredible streak. And can you see any sort of, if not imminent, medium-term end to that streak? Or do you still see the Yankees, even as sort of the diminished product that they are, do you still see them finishing at 500 or above for sort of the foreseeable future, as it were? If that streak is going to end anytime soon, it would be this season. Because Mm -hmm. after this season, you really, if everything breaks the way the Yankees believe it will, and it very well could, you start looking at the Yankees really starting to contend again. And then after, you know, after the big free agent class of 2018, you have to imagine the Yankees are going to bring in at least one, if not two, big names out of the Bryce Harper, Manny Machado group and all of those incredible free agents that are going to be available. So these quote-unquote lean years are not going to last too much longer. Uh, so if that streaks, it, and I think it's this year, this is the one season that you look at with a lot of question marks for the Yankees because they, they don't have any really of those veteran even aging stars that you always kind of could count on with the Yankees. Even last year, you had Mark Deshera, they had Alex Rodriguez for part of the year. They had sort of these older guys that even if you didn't know what they were going to do, you kind of believed that they would be something and you kind of had an idea of what they'd bring to the table. This year, the Yankees really look like they're preparing to turn it over to youth. You know, Greg Bird was just named the everyday first baseman. Aaron Judge is going to play a lot of right field. First full season for Gary Sanchez, and that's really just the beginning. Who knows who else we see up in New York as the season goes on. This is the first time in a long time the Yankees, I really believe, are committed, not just with words or with their actions, to seeing what they have in the farm and letting these kids you know, develop. Mm-hmm. And Sanchez has done nothing to bring the hype down to a, a more realistic level this spring. Who knows? Maybe this is the realistic level. I don't know. But he is slugging 705 as we speak right now. <laughs> so what do you think is the educated fans outlook for Gary Sanchez at this point? Because you look at his AAA stats even last year and they look nothing like his major league stats. Clearly, he's a good player. He's a good all around player. He'll be valuable even if he doesn't hit like last year. But what should people be expecting him to hit so that they won't be disappointed when he doesn't go crazy again? Yeah, he's baffling what he's doing. It's incredible. And I spent all off season, literally all off season, t- telling Yankee fans publicly, writing about it on, on, on social media, saying, look, lower your expectations. <laughs> Do not pencil 40 home runs in for Gary Sanchez. Prospect yeah. curves, you know, pr- prospect development is not a straight line. There's backwards parts. There's curves. It doesn't always go well. How many Yankee fans thought Luis Severino was going to spend much of last year in AAA? None. They all thought he was going to come in and be their number two starter and be great. It didn't happen. But like you said, Sanchez came back into spring training and looked no worse really than he did last year. So it just, when's it going to end? When's he going to slow down? I don't mm-hmm. know, but there's no way he could do what he did last year. Realistically, do I think Gary Sanchez could hit you know 25 home runs and be an all-star caliber catcher this year? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's hard to imagine for someone so inexperienced and young, but he's given me no reason not to believe he could do that. But I think we have to hold our horses on this guy hitting 40 and just being Superman. There's just it's impossible to do what he did down the stretch last year for a full season. He'd be one of the, he'd be he'd be better than Mike Trout. 
what he did last year was just <laughs> absurd. It, it, it was incredible to watch and cover. It was remarkable, but it's not, it's not sustainable. So let's say 25 home runs with his defense. That makes you one of the best catchers in baseball immediately if you're able to do that. Building off of Sanchez, this is going to be maybe kind of an annoying question because it ties in a bunch of players, but looking at sort of young hitters on the Yankees who are either regulars now or they're going to be, they could be on the roster soon. Looking at Gary Sanchez, Greg Bird, I'll fold in Tyler Austin, and of course, Aaron Judge. Can you sort of rank the four and how you expect them to be just as hitters, both sort of short and, and medium term? Sure. Look, I think at this point it would be crazy to rank anyone ahead of Sanchez just because of what we've seen. You know, who knows? But what we've seen from him, he clearly looks like a star in the making. I have no reason not to put him at the top of that list. I really like Greg Bird, even with the time he missed all of last season. He was really good in his brief stint when he got up to the Yankees a couple of years ago. He's had a great spring. He just looks like a nice player. He's got a really nice, smooth swing. You know, scouts love his swing mechanics. Uh, he's left-handed in Yankee Stadium, which is always a, a perk. So I kind of would put him next in terms of players I think will have the most impact. And then after that, I think more question marks. Now, Aaron Judge has enormous power. He has as much power as anyone currently in the major leagues. This is the guy that I've seen hit a ball over the scoreboard at Yankees strength training at Steinbrenner Field. I mean, over a huge scoreboard. It was unlike anything I've ever seen. It was remarkable. The guy's first major league at bat was like a 445-foot home run. His power is incredible but he just hasn't made nearly enough contact uh, for me to believe he's going to be a great major league player or even a very good major league hitter. Uh, I think with Aaron Judge, if he turns out to be a Mark Reynolds type, a, a Chris Carter type, I think you'd be satisfied. I just don't know if he'll ever be uh, hit for a higher average or make more contact than he currently does. Hopefully he's not striking out at the rate he was last season because that's not major league quality uh, but no doubt he'll hit home runs you give him you give him a full season he will hit you 30 to 35 home runs just by dumb luck because he has so much power and then after that tyler austin you know the yankees always thought of him as you know more of a, a reserve player of sort of a backup corner infielder fourth outfielder type but he had some good stretches with the yankees last season so we'll see uh but if i had to rank him one through four i guess i'd go sanchez bird judge austin mm-hmm and for whatever it's worth, Judge, his strikeout rate this spring is about half of what it was in the majors last year in, I don't know, 60 plate appearances or something. Meanwhile, Greg Bird is slugging 1,085. So <laughs> there's that. <laughs> Can you describe being in Aaron Judge's presence? Like for people who just see him <laughs> on TV or in a picture on Twitter or whatever, he looks like a non-human, like some different sort of species. Can you compare him to like other big baseball players like Giancarlo Stanton or anyone else who is huge? Like, is he yeah. in person that enormous? Yeah. Aaron Judge should not be playing baseball. That's what you think yeah. when you see the guy. Honestly, this he he looks like a enormous linebacker or a defensive end. More morally, he, the guy is absolutely just humongous. It's incredible. He, he's bigger than Giancarlo Stanton. Leads him to height. Yeah. I've been around both of them. I mean, uh, this guy is bigger. I, I actually remember talking to him last season, asking, him, "Do you ever play basketball? Do you ever consider playing basketball?" Say, never really played basketball. He <laughs> wasn't never really interested in him. He was you know, always focused on baseball. Basketball was never really his thing. Even though he spent pretty much his entire life told by others, "You should be playing basketball." I actually wrote a story last August about Aaron Judge and his height and just the the history he's going to have to overcome. 
There have been very, very, very few players, six foot seven or taller, position players, hitters, non-pitchers, who have succeeded in the major leagues. Actually, in the history of baseball, there's only been 11 position players, at least listed at at least six foot seven. Aaron Judge was number 11 of that group. Most of them really did not have careers of any note. Tony Clark is one that did. Uh, Frank Howard's another one. Then after that, you just start to get into names like Nate Fryman, who we just saw on the WBC, and a bunch of guys that most of us have probably never heard of, like Damon Minor, Ryan Minor, Ron Jackson, Walt Bond. Richie Sexton's one who had a good career. But the point is there haven't been many of them. Most of these really tall guys become pitchers. And what I was told in doing my reporting for that piece was just that when you're that big, it's just hard to keep your swing mechanics where they need to be. There's so many moving parts. You might not quite be as sort of compact and, and athletic in some ways as someone smaller would in terms of keeping your swing where it needs to be. Tony Clark said it was a huge struggle's whole career mechanically, and he attributed part of that just to his height. And I think that's something Judge is going to have to, have to overcome. Shifting over to the side of, of the pitchers, because the Yankees have some of those too, which some people might not believe, but Masahiro Tanaka is coming up on, I guess they're all interesting seasons for him, but I believe that he has an opt-out clause in his contract after this season he has i think three years and 67 million dollars committed after the opt-out clause if he decided not to opt out and i think a lot of people myself included when we think of tanaka of course you think of the splitter but you also have to you can't help but remember the ucl injury that he had in 2014 where i think everyone thought he was going to need tommy john surgery and then he didn't have it so i guess sort of a two-part question one do you think it's fair that tanaka is coming off a 200 inning season and i think he's still associated with being damaged goods and two how good do you think that he needs to be this season in order to opt out of of the contract that he has yeah, that's going to follow him along forever, you know, until he either has Tommy John surgery or he just retires or isn't good anymore. That's going to follow him around. There's no doubt about it. But in terms of the Yankees, in, you know, within the Yankee organization, really, this is no longer a a concern to them it was a couple of years ago. Last season really changed things, uh, the perception of Tanaka, because he's so great for much of last year. I don't average and even realizes how good Tanaka was last year in part because the Yankees were kind of out of it for much of the year they weren't really competitive Tanaka for a good last season with the way the American League was but I remember some folks were talking about to be a Cy Young candidate and he was really that good as he ever was 3.7 in 31 starts through 199 two-thirds innings only 179 hits he was excellent. And I, I think it really opened up a lot of people's eyes as to sort of what he's able to do, even with whatever's going on in his elbow. I think if he does anything, even in the ballpark of what he did last year in 2017, he will opt out because I, I think that it's been enough time where he'll get, he'll get paid if he has another year. If he has two straight seasons like he did, you know, 2016, then follows it up with a great 2017. I don't, I don't foresee him staying with that contract. Look, could his elbow pop? Sure, this is not typical. His The way he's handled this situation has not been typical. But he was just so good last season. He was durable and he was effective. And I, I think people really need to give him credit for that. I don't think people, like I said, realize just how good this guy was last season. And, and look, I hope he has another good year. He's, in really, he's an interesting guy to watch. 
And CC Sabathia kind of transformed himself last year. A lot of people thought he was on his way out of the game, and he managed to have a productive season by changing some things in his pitch mix and becoming kind of a contact manager with his velocity and his strikeouts down. Do you think that this is a plateau where he can stay for a little while, or was it just kind of a hiccup along the decline path yeah last season was strange i don't think anyone expected him to sort of bounce back the way he did but i think we have to remember he really was not nearly as good in these you know later in the season as he was early on he was really really good for the first couple months he was excellent but in the second half he he was not nearly as good but not even the second half really just after the first couple months he wasn't as good as ERA was about four last year. Could he do that again? I don't know. Maybe. I think he definitely did figure something out. I don't think we could dismiss that. He he's definitely figured out how he can get guys out with obviously reduced stuff. I mean, he's obviously picked something up along the way. But the Yankees plan on having him start the second game of the season. If the Yankees are counting on CC Sabathia, or the Yankees believe CC Sabathia is their second best starting pitcher, uh, it's not going to be a great year in the Bronx. I just don't think you could expect anything out of CC, even though his ERA improved by like three quarters of a run. Sticking with the rotation, because it stays interesting, we have to talk about Michael Pineda. Strikeouts, good. Walks, good. Grand balls, whatever. They're fine. His velocity is good. He's he's hard to hit, except for when he's not, because over the last few years, I'm not going to run all the numbers, but you know, peripherals suggest a very good ERA. ERA itself, extremely mediocre. I don't know if anyone has a good answer for this, but because I have to find out if you do, what's the deal with Michael Pineda? The weirdest part of Michael Pineda, at least last season, I can't really speak to before last season because I wasn't around the Yankees nearly as often. But the one fascinating thing about last season was he could not get out of innings. I mean, this guy, I've never, it was uncanny how many times he would retire the first two batters of an inning on about seven pitches and end up giving up four runs. And it happened every game, multiple innings. And it was something the Yankees knew, something Pineda knew. I don't know if it was a focus issue, if he just sort of lost his sort of edge after retiring the first two batters in inning. But it was just remarkable how many times he would seem like he's on and quickly dispatch of two guys and then just give up double, double, single home run. And you go, what the heck just happened? It ha- you know, he, he'll give up four runs in the time it took him to get those first two outs. It's incredible. Maybe that was a fluke. I don't know. The Yankees hope it was. Maybe it's something that, can be improved just by sort of focusing on the mental aspect and staying sharp mentally when you get to two outs. But there's no doubt he has the stuff. We've seen it since the day he got to the big leagues with Seattle that he has the stuff, but he just has not been able to put it together. And at some point, you're no longer sort of a young player trying to put it all together. You just kind of are what you are. And and despite CC Sabathia, every single spring training saying, this is the year Michael Pineda is going to win the Cy Young. <laughs> I'll believe it when I see it. I, I hope he does well. I like Michael. He's got it. Like I said, he got stuff that makes you believe. But just why has it not come together? I, I don't know if there's a good answer for it. Maybe this will be the year. But I think everyone needs to kind of just be on a, a I'll believe it when I see it mentality at this point. Yeah, I'm going to kick this question over to Ben in a second. I just wanted to issue a follow-up comment. So uh, Baseball Reference has some splits. Michael Pineda last year with zero outs allowed a 687 OPS. That's very good. One out, he allowed a 663 OPS. That's even better. Two outs, 980. <laughs> 980. That's 300 points worse than the rest of Michael Pineda. I don't think I've ever looked at these splits before, but 
obviously this is not new news to you. That's incredible. Anyway, hey Ben, you can you can take the next question. <laughs> okay. Well, what did you make of the Chapman signing? Because it seemed like not the typical Cashman move at at this point. The way he's operating, and he's managed to actually operate the way that he wants to for once, and and do the youth movement and trade some veterans. But then they brought this veteran back, and it seemed as if Hal Steinbrenner believes that fans buy tickets to come see Chapman throw fastballs. What did you make of the timing of that signing? Well, it just shows that the Yankees don't ever fully rebuild. You know, even when they commit mm-hmm. to youth, they are they refuse to be a team. And Brian Cashman has said this. He is not authorized by ownership to blow it all up. It's just he's not allowed to do that. He does not have the ability to do it by house Steinbrenner. They have to always at least give the illusion that they're trying to compete. And Aroldis Chapman does make them better. There's no question about it. He is a closer, but he's a very good one. Uh, there's also the situation where the Yankees had some money coming off the books, and the Yankees are not going to spend money that they have coming off the books. If you're Brian Cashman, you're, you have this cash, spend it. It's not like, you know, otherwise just sitting in Hal Steinbrenner's pocket. So Aroldis Chapman's a good good use of that money, especially with more money coming off the books after this season, you know, because you're no, eventually won't be paying Alex Rodriguez anymore. CC Sabathia is going to be gone. So the Yankees are kind of trying to, to buff up for when they could sign Bryce Harper, Manny Machado, and really go for it. And they have Chapman now for what they believe will be part of those good years coming up. Maybe the end of this deal, they think he's young enough that in three, four years, he'll still be very productive. At least that's what they believe. I don't think it's an unreasonable thought to believe that. So I understand it. And look, the Yankees aren't a disaster. This is the team that in some ways overachieved last year. You know, they they somehow got back into the race in September. Is it really that far out of the realm of possibility that the Yankees compete for a wild card in an American league that doesn't really have many teams that you look at as, you know, sure bets? I don't think that's that's crazy. So I, I understand it. It's not like the Yankees don't have money. You know, they have plenty of money. They're never not going to spend money. And they spend it on personal off-field things aside, you know it's going to be very productive on the field. I'll interject before getting to my question. I was looking at Michael Pineda 2015. Weirdly, he was far better with two outs. So that's just a problem that he (laughs) developed all of a sudden. Anyway, in the bullpen, we know, as much as we understand relievers at all, we know Aroldis Chapman is going to be great. We know Dylan Batances is going to be arguably even greater, depending on how you look at things. What is the Yankees' plan beyond the top two? Obviously, they started last year with Andrew Miller. They don't have that this year. They have a lot of names, like every team does, but how confident are they in the rest of their bullpen? really depends first on what the starting rotation is looking like after the first three we've talked about. I don't even, it's not quite really settled as far as I know. Maybe they know internally, but not publicly at least, who the fourth and fifth starters are going to be out of Luis Severino, Chad Green, Brian Mitchell, Adam Warren, all these guys. So, that will play a role for sure. Uh, they do have Tyler Clippard, who who knows? He's had some good years. He's had some not-so-good years. He's not the worst guy to have sort of in, in the middle innings there. Tommy Lane from the left side, who knows? He was not. He was okay down the stretch with the Yankees last year. They also probably love Adam Warren in the bullpen, who's a guy that has had success with the Yankees in the past. Look, is, it a, is the soft underbelly of the bullpen great? No, of course not. But the reality is... You don't need very much when you have Batances and Chapman at the end. Now, look, Batances has said, in light of what happened in arbitration this year and that whole mess with Randy Levine, he's kind of made it sound like he might not be as amenable to coming in for 
you know, multiple innings that they've been in the past and coming in with the bases loaded in the seventh and then pitching the eighth. We'll see how that all shakes out. But even if you just have the chance of the Chapman for the eighth and ninth, you could get by. I don't think that I don't think Adam Warren and Tyler Clippard are going to be the reason the Yankees make or don't make the playoffs. And by the way, we skipped over him earlier, but Chris Carter finally ended up with the Yankees after an offseason of people wondering where Chris Carter would go and whether he'd go to Japan and he is behind Holiday in the DH role and so he's the righty part of the platoon, I guess, at first base, if there is a platoon, does there need to be a platoon? And if there is, is getting at bats against lefties when Bird sits enough to keep his roster spot all year? Yeah, that's the plan is that he'll play against lefties. And look, we're still talking about Matt Holiday, who, you know, how many, even as a DH, do we really think Matt Holiday is going to play 140 games? I mean, who knows? He's mm-hmm. been injured so much too. So I think not his insurance there. He's also insurance for Greg Bird, who we don't know how good he's going to be. We don't know how healthy he's going to be. He just hasn't played for a whole year. So all around, I think he's just an insurance policy. Look, if everything goes the way the Yankees hope, he won't play very much outside of against left-handed pitching, but we know how these things go. And I wouldn't be surprised if you see Chris Carter a lot more than we might believe. I talked to one, you know, GM actually was above a GM, one high-ranking executive who said up and down for another team that said he thought Chris Carter was one of, if not the steal of the offseason. That the market devalued Carter's skill set, the home run so little, it was devalued so much that. Yankees ended up getting him for way less than his value would suggest that. And he thought the Yankees really were really shrewd for getting him at the price they did. I know Chris Carter's flaws, but 41 home runs don't just grow on trees. So he's not a bad guy just to have sitting there in case you need him. All right. Well, we always apologetically end (laughs) these segments by asking the guest to give us a win total prediction. So could you give us one for the 2017 Yankees? Is this the year that the streak ends? As long as I don't get, as long as I don't get held to this again on September 30th, <laughs> let's say uh, I would put them in the in the 83 to 85 win range. I think they're still a five above 500 team. I think they're a team that will be playing games of some import in September. I don't know how deep into September. I don't think they're going to be dead in the water. You know. It, the all-star break or sometime in August, I think they'll kind of be hanging around, but I don't see them as a playoff team. Now, look, when you, when I, when you say, I think this is an 85 win team, it's not a huge stretch to say, well, they will be an 88 win team. Then all of a sudden you are in the playoffs. So do I, I'm not saying the Yankees won't be there at the end. Like I said, the American league doesn't have too many sure things. The AL East is not as strong as perhaps it's been in the past, but I, I don't think the Yankees will be in the playoffs. If I had if I had to predict, nor do I think they're going to be bad. I think they're just going to be kind of decent and okay. And everyone knows this is just a building block for what could be a, a lot of really good years to come. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll we'll call it eighty four. I guess if we have to pin <laughs> you down to one number. <laughs> um, all right, so everyone can read Jared's coverage of the Yankees and of all of baseball at the Wall Street Journal, Wall Street Journal Sports. You can find him on Twitter at Jared Diamond and he also does a newsletter which you can find also on Twitter at 30 Newsletter it's good interviews with writers and other people that I recommend so Jared thanks for joining us thanks so much guys it was fun thank you very much alright that is it for today 
You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Five listeners who have already pledged their support include Ryan Thibodeau, Chris Feld, Sean Cusack, Connor Sparks, and Paul Ferraro. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild, and you can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. If you enjoyed the podcast preview series, check out Banished to the Pen, our sister site, daughter site, site operated by Effectively Wild listeners who did a preview post for every team we talked about. Makes a good companion to the podcasts. Jeff and I will stay on the three-week schedule now, but we'll just do normal topics on Mondays and Fridays and continue to do email shows on Wednesday. Speaking of which, please keep your questions coming via email at podcast at fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system. If you're looking for something else to listen to, Michael Bauman and I have or are about to have a new episode of the Ringer MLB show up. We did prop bets for the 2017 season, 20 either-ors or over-unders, which was fun and kind of effectively wild-esque. We also put the form online at the Ringer, so you can play along yourself and compete to be the best at predicting things. We also talked to Ramon Russell, a developer for MLB The Show 17 about that game, which will be out tomorrow for PlayStation 4. Hope you enjoyed the new format of the preview series this year. We will talk to you later this week. Now we're finally gonna land. Good news, good news, good news. Good news.